2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm sitting here with Aaron Lammer. What's up, man? Ho. Hey. Evan Ratliff and Josh Berman both out this week. <laughs> I was almost out this Yeah, week, you so basically are out. It's going to be flying solo here. Aaron just got back from uh, a week in Mexico, which sounds like it was very nice until the end when he got Mexico sick. I wouldn't say it was Montezuma's revenge, but it was uh, Montezuma's admonishment. It was a fi- it's a fitting uh, transition into our guest this week. You were just traveling, and you uh, for, the, for the podcast this week, I believe you interviewed a travel writer. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Ralph Potts. Oh, wait, Ra- did I say Ralph? <laughs> Ralph Potts. You're just, you're really focused on sickness right now. <laughs> um, yeah, we actually did this interview at about 11.30 p.m. right after he got off a plane, and uh, I have no recollection of doing it, and I haven't listened to it again, so I'm not going to say whether it was good or bad. <laughs> Aaron, disowning the interview you're about to listen to. Um, but we do have a sponsor this week. And uh, that sponsor is Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. Thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that uh, any of my co-hosts are alive next week. Here's Aaron and Rolf. Welcome. Hello, Rolf Potts, freshly off an airplane. Where, Where were you flying in from? Uh, back from Kansas, which is actually my home and was the site of an article I recently wrote for Sports Illustrated. Okay. What, uh, what brought you back to Kansas for this uh, trip? Well, the, the story uh, involves this murder that happened last fall where um, a player from one small college football team was allegedly murdered by a couple players from a different team. Uh, and the article goes into this sports culture in the, in the dwindling population of the Great Plains where really old colleges are sort of staying alive by becoming very sports-centered. And uh, you have colleges that have 60 or 70% athletes. You have 600-person um, schools with 120-person football teams. Yeah. Uh, and it really changes the, the culture of the schools. Um, and one of the schools, not, not one of the principal schools that I wrote about whose players were involved, but another school that was concerned that that culture of you know, violence and maybe um, shoddy oversight 
uh, in the sports culture would be bad for them. So I talked to their trustees over the weekend. Um, oh, really? Did they fly you out to do that? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, they, they flew me out and then, then sort of a consultant uh, with NCAA D3 experience. And they're just trying to, to um, which I think is admirable, they're trying to make sure that with 70% athlete student body, they don't lose the mission, you know, their 125-year-old mission of what their college is for. So hmm. so let's sort of rewind on that. What, Where did you come across this story in, in the first place? Well, I'm from Kansas, okay. um, and uh, I, I, I grew up in Wichita, and I, I have a house now uh, about 10 miles outside of the city of Salina up north. Uh, and I'm only there about two to four months a year uh, because a lot of what my travel, a lot of what my writing does is uh, revolves around travel. Uh-huh. Uh, but I was just home to visit my family, and while I was there, um, this this young man was uh, was beaten, and a, a week later he died in the hospital. And uh, my sister actually teaches at one of these schools. My father was a bio professor at a, at a different one, and so I know this sports culture well. I've been watching these football games since I was um, about six years old, and, and uh, the night, Brandon Brown is the, is the man who died. Um, the night he died, I was at a football game. I was at a, at a Bethany, Kansas Wesleyan football game, and uh, I don't usually write sports stories, uh, and actually more and more of my, my non-travel stories are coming out of Kansas now, just because I think a place that you know well uh, often has stories that aren't being told. And yeah. so I, I really became intrigued with, with the notion that um, a 26-year-old, uh, which is a little bit older than your average college student, but a 26-year-old guy from Sacramento would be uh, beaten to death, allegedly, uh, by two kids from Texas, from Dallas, in this tiny little town in Kansas. And, and just that dynamic, I thought, was, was, uh, was unusual, you mm-hmm. know, that you have— um, not only do these schools have 120-man football teams, but they're majority out of state. Kansas just doesn't have enough kids to fill out football rosters that are that big. And so Texas and California and Florida and New Jersey uh, kids are being uh, imported to these little towns of 3,000, 3,500, 15,000 people uh, and playing football. And so um, I just wanted – I was sort of intrigued by by this, and I was talking to an, an editor friend of mine at Sports Illustrated. He was really – uh, intrigued by the idea that a 600-person college would have a 120-man football team. Yeah, it was. It's interesting to me because I, when I first, when you first sort of sent the story to me, um, the story really, if you look at sort of the bulk of the the word, the word count in the story is about how the people who uh, ended up in this murder ended up in Kansas and what brought them there. And it, it sort of struck me, and I've thought about it since I read the story. What exactly is the point of continuing to operate these universities if they are really basically just a, in certain ways, a recruiting scheme to get uh, football players generally from poor communities around the country to sort of come to Kansas and, and play for four years, not even necessarily during their sort of general college time? Yeah, well, it, it ended up being a the backstory to the murder was 125 years long. You know, it yeah. goes back to the fact that um, in the in between the Civil War and, and 1890, there was a land boom in Kansas, and a million settlers came, and they were very optimistic. And every religious sect founded their own university, and so you have these four counties, four adjacent counties in Kansas, have five universities, yeah. um, and the population really can't support that. And as as one of the people I 
interviewed while I was reporting it is that colleges die hard. You know, yeah. they will take bubble gum and bailing wire and try to keep the college alive, even though demographically there's no reason why they they should. And and almost accidentally, as I point out in the story, um, almost accidentally it has come to be a sports related business model for these schools. Uh, if you want to win games, you try to find the best players, and uh, the best players are concentrated in places like Texas, which has a very deep football culture, uh, and California, which has a um, a lot of junior colleges that appeal uh, that tend towards sports. Uh, and and so uh, to fill out certain skill positions on the team, you have to travel far, yeah. and and so suddenly you have teams with more people from Harlem and the Bronx than Nebraska and Missouri. You have more people from Texas and California than 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 Kansas and the surrounding states combined, and it really changes. It's a culture shock. It, it, it's weird, you know. In the era of modernity and globalization, people, the, the the big meta narrative is that people are moving from the countryside into big cities, and now you have this strange thing in places like Kansas, where kids from the big cities are are sort of going to these tiny towns, you know, with their own hopes and dreams, and the schools are sort of using it to stay alive. Um, they're reluctant to admit it, but that's really that's really how it is. You can't if seventy percent of your students are are uh, athletes and 20% of your student body are football players, then it's hard to get around the fact that this is your business model. So it seems like the colleges themselves wanted no part in um, you writing this story. This was not something they were enthusiastic about. And this is a story because it deals with athletes at a Division three college. This is, this is not a story that was going to be part of the sports press, naturally. Um, what was your sort of in point without without being able to talk directly to people who were involved in in the killing and without really a lot of cooperation from the university where was your sort of opportunity to to start getting inside the story well it was it was a weird um scenario in that i was sort of perfectly positioned to report this story because uh um you know my father was a professor uh in in one of these schools growing up uh, my sister is a professor in one of them now uh, and I and I sort of knew the culture, um, and and you know local reporters. It's I guess it's just not something. It's something that local reporters are not really touching, you know, investigatively. And in, and in towns like McPherson and Hillsborough, where these schools are, those those uh, those schools are sort of the the biggest thing in town, and yeah. you're not going to criticize your 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 local school. Um, and so. Um, I guess my in was just that I I know a lot of people, um, you know, two generations worth of people who have either gone to these schools or teach in these schools, and um, I think these small schools are used to just sort of feeding press releases and not really have anybody ask uh, challenging questions, um, and 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 my you know the door was sort of slammed uh, in my face uh, in reporting for the two schools that were involved in the murder. Um, but I just sort of reported around it because um, what is true for one school is pretty much true for the rest. And um, I just talked to a lot of people. I talked to 40 or 50 people um, who either were athletes or professors or administrators. And um, it was interesting. If you read the newspapers in Kansas after the murder, the big quote from both schools and from the from the KCAC, it's actually not Division Three. it's NAIA, which is even smaller than NCAA Division Three. Wow. They said, we can't believe this happened. We can't believe this happened. And then you talk to anybody who's in the know there, and they were saying, we can't believe this didn't happen sooner. Really? Um, because um, 
this trend has been happening for 30 years. Uh, and when I, I went, I went to Friends University, which is my, where my father taught uh, for my freshman year. And I just remember um, noticing how separate the football team was from the rest of campus and how some of the guys that they had brought in to play football were kind of scary, you know, yeah. that I was, I was sort of afraid of them. Uh, and so I had seen this 20 years, 20 years ago, and uh, so I sort of knew what was going on. And there's just a lot of incidences, which I allude to in the story, you know, guys dealing drugs out of their dorm rooms, uh, people getting beat up and sent to the hospital, um, you know, players getting arrested for robbing drug dealers and stuff. Um, that anecdotally people who are close to these schools know about, but I guess because it never resulted in a murder and nobody's really followed up on this, nobody has asked these questions. Well, how does this jibe with being Mennonite or, or, or Lutheran or, or Presbyterian? Uh, and Sports Illustrated, when you pitched this story, did you pitch the whole thing, the whole, like, you know, these colleges are basically using this as a business model and this resulted in a murder? Or did how much of that story did you sort of already have when you pitched it? Um, I guess I, I probably had about 60% of it. Like I, I hadn't expected going through court records and realizing that there was a pattern of violent incidences at a certain school. Um, I actually hadn't planned on getting the door slammed in my face. I figured, Hey, I, I'm the sports illustrated guy in a part of the country where sports illustrated never comes. Yeah. They'll let me interview a few players. You know, um, it'll be a fairly standard controlled interview situation. Um, and I didn't even get close to that situation, and I ended up reporting that through Twitter, which is far more revealing and far more damning than anything they would have revealed had they stuck me in a room with their two most polite players. Um, but in terms of, of, of the pitch itself, <clears throat> my editor was interested in sort of the in cold blood meets Friday Night Lights angle to it. Right. You know, the idea that these little towns, these little Mennonite and, and Brethren and, and Lutheran towns have become um, home to these these dense football cultures where, where sports are suddenly very important. And then the idea that out on the plains there's this really um, kind of haunting murder um, that that as of now, the preliminary hearing finally um, uh, finished and it's going to go to trial, but um, it's still unclear exactly what happened. Uh, and so there's just this, um, and, then, and then you have, you know, these suspects who I sort of became intrigued with myself, um, uh, these are these are kids from Dallas. They don't seem inherently evil. Um, uh, there's a lot of competing stories about what happened that night. But I just thought it was it, it was interesting that these kids are just a long way from home, and then suddenly they're in jail in a place that they probably hadn't heard of, you know, before the recruiters came down to Dallas and, and, and got them. So um, the story unspooled in specific ways, but um, up front I knew just because I'd been close to it for so long. Um, I knew that this had something to do with the fact that these tiny religious schools have become very sports oriented in the last 20 years. So you, you grew up in Kansas, right? Yeah. I, I grew up in Kansas and I went to school in Oregon for a while and, yeah. um, did some traveling out of college. Well, worked as a landscaper for a while, did some traveling after that, um, thinking that I would get it out of my system and, and. I'm still traveling. What was the first trip for you? Uh, the first trip for me was around the United States. I, I converted a van, uh, traveled for about seven and a half months around the U.S., and uh, just had, I, I guess I always tell people that you can't, you can only travel 
America as a 23-year-old once, you know, <laughs> yeah. and in, in some ways I'll never be able to top that trip because everything was so new. Um, but along the way, I, I realized that how, how cheap and safe and, and fun and exhilarating it was. Uh, and when I ran out of money, I moved to Korea and taught English for a while, saved some money uh, and continued traveling around Asia, started freelancing for um, Salon.com and, and some other venues. Um, Salon made me a travel columnist for a while. and Yeah, I was sort of interested. Like the, the, that period seems like uh, about 1999 you were yeah. writing for Salon. That's a pretty good gig, like uh, being in your 20s, just traveling and writing about it every week. How did you, how did you get that in the first place? Well, I was um, – it, it's funny that I was – I had I freelanced for three years and had a book contract before I met an editor uh, or even talked to them on the phone. It was a completely internet-enabled transition into writing for me. I was living as an expatriate. One day I was searching around. I had some some travel stories from my USA trip and from Korea to sell, and I sent um, I sent stories to like five publications, four of whom were probably like high school kids in their mom's basement making a literary <laughs> magazine. Four of them I never heard back from, but one of them was from Salon, and the editor, Don George, who's sort of become a mentor to me, uh, said, hey, we love your story about Vegas. Sorry, we can only pay you $250 for it. Um, It's going to run tomorrow. And I thought, well, that's $250 more than I thought I was going to get. Yeah. Um, And so I just started sending, uh, since I already really um, was a fan of Salon, I just started sending them everything I had written from Asia. And then um, I pitched a column uh, at the end of 1998, they didn't really give me an answer, but at the time, Leonardo DiCaprio was shooting a movie called The Beach in Thailand, and I did this little gonzo stunt where I tried to sneak in, and, and it was sort of a story within a story about um, just how travel culture works and how uh, uh, the idiosyncrasies of backpacker culture. The story of The Beach is about this secret beach that none of the backpackers know about, but uh, the beach where they were filming the movie, of course, everybody knew about it, and so I was sort yeah. of doing the story in reverse. And that that made it into a best American travel writing, and and uh, and Salon gave me a column, and so I was in this charmed position of wandering the earth for a couple of years and uh, writing about it every two weeks. How, did you have ambitions as a writer before you started doing the travel stuff, or uh, totally, totally, yeah? yeah. Um, and in fact, after I traveled the United States for seven and a half months, I tried to write a book about it and failed miserably. And I told people that, that was my master's degree. You know, if you want to save money on a master's degree in writing, just spend a year and a half, two years trying to write a book and fail and you'll, you'll make all the mistakes you need tell, to make. I'm interested. I, failure is my favorite theme on this podcast. So tell, tell me about how you failed and what you were attempting. Well, I was attempting to, I was attempting to write a, you know, this, you know, Jack Kerouac, you know, of course I was besotted with, with Jack Kerouac and the great American road narrative when I was in my early twenties. And so I was writing about this experience of traveling around the United States as a as a 23 year old, and I think I made the mistake of forgetting about my audience. And I was just sort of describing things, and my sentences were very pretty um, on a sentence by sentence level, but I was delivering nothing. I was delivering no insight, no structure, and I think my biggest lesson was was just realizing that you have to pour things into a story shaped vessel. Yeah. You can't just talk about what happened. Uh, and to this day, when I, when I teach travel writing or, or essay writing classes, structure is what I emphasize because it's what I had no sense for back then. And that, that is what I learned. Um, it, it's funny. I, 
this was in the mid-90s, and after Pulp Fiction, which is coming up on its 20th year anniversary, after that came out, every 24-year-old male in America tried to write a Pulp Fiction screenplay. Yeah. And I just happened, my lousy Pulp Fiction ripoff um, uh, gained the attention of a B-movie studio, and as we were going through edits on the screenplay, they're here, well, in Act 2, this is happening. And I'm thinking, what's Act 2, you know? <laughs> Uh, and so I realized um, that structure is important for screenplays, and of course screenplays as a genre are, are, are almost all plot, they're almost all structure. And I sort of reverse engineered that into my nonfiction writing, and that was the turning point. And um, once I realized that that is essential uh, for, for storytelling, even in, in a nonfiction setting, that you know sometimes chronology is the worst way to try and recount something that happened, you have to use these techniques of fiction, even if you're writing in nonfiction, structurally. Um, that was the turning point. And so I went from selling my first freelance story to Salon in 98 to becoming a columnist in 99 to being in Best American Travel Writing in 2000 to having a book contract for Vagabonding, my first book, in, in 2001. And so failure, you know, eight years of failure uh, leading up to that was exactly what I needed. Yeah. Um, what did you have when you say that you sort of learned how to pour pour into a structure. Um, did you have models for that? Did you study other travel writers or anything? I, I didn't. Um, it was completely a screenplay model. Really? Um, and in fact, I still use, uh, when, I, when I teach, I use screenplay metaphors because everybody's used to, to movies. Uh, and I sort of didn't discover travel writing until I became one. Mm. Um, I, I read some Tim Cahill and some Pico Iyer and, and some Paul Theroux to a certain extent. But I didn't really throw myself into the genre in, um, until I was writing for Salon every couple of weeks and thinking, wow, you know, I, I should probably figure out what this travel writing thing is all about. So when you're out on the road and you're expected to, during this period, to turn in a column every couple of weeks, how do you organize travel around knowing that you have to have something to write about every so often? It's funny. It gets blended into your mindset as you go from place to place. And uh, for some reason, I was I was really good at attracting weird people. Like for some reason, uh, the town eccentric decides that they want to be my best friend, and that always lend itself to uh, to good stories. I have a story called My Beirut Hostage Crisis, which yeah, is about true. the uh, the glories of Lebanese hospitality, um, and how I I sort of befriended or this man befriended me he's sort of this Don Quixote type who had a a very um uh, a very fantastical vision of how Beirut should be as opposed to how it was uh and and that was a perfect example is that is that what could have been perceived as an irritant was actually a great source of stories because people are a great thing to write about in the context of place and then sometimes I would do some stunts you know sneaking trying to sneak onto the the set of a Leonardo DiCaprio movie is is one of those um, yeah I, I probably wouldn't have hitchhiked across to Eastern Europe had I not been writing about it so I liked how in in the the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio one uh, you get a real feeling um, in the way that you describe yourself that you don't see yourself as a professional reporter and may not have all of the tools of the professional uh, reporting palette um, in your toolbox. Did you, as you, as you went, did you become more professional as a writer? Did you sort of pick up some tricks? Like I need a story. Like I know I can like get one by doing X and Y. I mean, were you, how, how did the, how did you evolve as a travel writer? Well, I think I, 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 I did pick up some, repertorial skills, you know, like 
more sophisticated interview techniques than than sneaking into the hotel where the director and producer of the beach are staying and yeah. <laughs> getting half drunk and trying to ask them questions. Um, one thing that really lent itself towards good stories in that situation is that I was traveling slowly and I was letting things happen. And I think that's kind of rare. Um, oftentimes we go on magazine assignments or we go to a place with a pretty specific idea of what's going to happen there um, in a very short amount of time, in, in, a, in a set two weeks that you're on assignment. Whereas I was just sort of wandering around mostly on my own dime. Salon wasn't paying me very much. And I had the luxury of time and I could... It, it, and it wasn't really repertorial or journalistic sophistication so much as the 24-hour day for me to, instead of seeking out the story, the story sort of found me to a certain extent. And I miss those those days. I mean, I, I make more money for my writing now, and I'm probably a better journalist than I was. But having um, seven-day weeks to just wander month after month, uh, you know, for a year and a half, two years, uh, was was a great way to find very real and spontaneous and human travel stories. Um, so yeah, my, my, my journalistic skills have gotten better, but I still like to keep that ragged edge of spontaneity, um, especially in travel stories, because I think you find truer things because there's, there's often this expectations versus reality dynamic that we often project ideas onto places that are far away. Um, and it's not until you was, well, it's, it's not until those until you stay long enough to let those places peel away that those expectations that you find a, a realer and truer evocation of those places. When you, when you go and teach travel writing now, how do you, what do you teach a student who, who wants to sort of do what you did? Well, I, I, I tell them that one, it's about the writing and not about the travel, you know, yeah. that, that, um, you know, Pico Iyer can go to the corner supermarket and, and write a fascinating thing. Whereas someone who, has a, a harrowing ascent of uh, Kilimanjaro may not be able to write about it very well. But at the same time, you really have to deeply, you have to understand travel. I, I recommend that people live overseas in, as an expatriate for a while or somehow have some long-term va vagabonding style travel because then you understand travel intuitively and you're less likely to write an obvious or, or a naive story. Um, and I, I teach a... a writing workshop in Paris every summer, and, and that dovetails with the idea of the flaneur, if you're familiar with flaneuring, um, which is the Baudelaire and, and uh, all the way up through the, the situationists of the 1960s in Paris would wander through the streets instead of, they, they had this impression that they, were, they, had, they weren't seeing the city anymore because they were going from point A to point B to point C on business, and, and, and the mission of the flaneur is to, to wander in search of experience with no plan at all, and so I have my students do that and um, and have them stop looking for what they think they're supposed to find and and just uh, uh, leave themselves open to the city. Uh, and I think that's a, a good skill for a travel writer to have. Yeah. It's kind of like my I, – I, I used to have experiences like that in, in my youth with magic mushrooms. We used to do mushrooms and wander around my hometown. I, I didn't know the word flaneuring at that time, but we, we had a similar uh, similar experiences with it. Um as you left that behind, did you say like, yeah, I can make it. I'm going to make a career out of being a travel writer. Do you see this as like a viable thing to keep, uh, keep going with? 
Yeah, perhaps naively. Yeah. Um, it's not easy to do, but I was based in Southeast Asia, and at the time, and I'm sure that still holds true to a certain extent, it cost almost nothing to live in Southeast Asia. You know, I was renting a, a room. I wrote my first book in a $100 a month room, uh, and, and food is very inexpensive as well. So I just thought, well, I'll live a cheap life, and that will allow me to be a freelancer. And to an extent, that's still true. You know, I, I got land in Kansas instead of Manhattan uh, or some sexier place um, just because that enables me to um, travel the, the way I want to travel and write about the things I want to write about. Um, and so I guess that the transition to travel writing was intentional, but part of that intentionality was realizing that I, I couldn't live an extravagant life in material terms. So mm-hmm. I try to live uh, um, extravagant life in experiential terms, I guess, as a traveler. Is that... Has your view have your view changed on that as you've aged, or are you still happy with that decision? Oh, I'm ha- I'm happy with that decision, but I I you know things have uh, I don't travel in the same way that I used to travel maybe ten or fifteen years ago. Um, I I realize that maybe it's not always desirable to travel in two year chunks, and I've had other opportunities come up. You know, um, getting to know thirty acres of Kansas land has been really rewarding for me, um, and it sort of renewed my relationship with sense of place. You know, the Sports Illustrated story came out of the landscape of Kansas, um, but a lot of other ones have as well. You know, this after years of, of seeking out the landscape and sense of place in exotic parts of the world. Um, Getting in touch with a sense of place and history in my own home state has led to to fascinating um, investigations and, and and some interesting stories in their own right. Yeah, I'm a f- I'm a fan of. Um, there's an Indian magazine called The Caravan. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's um, sort of a Indian New Yorker, I guess I would say. It, and it rings a bell. It's yeah. always really incredible to read um, because it's one of the only. Uh, longish form um, magazines in India and English so that the availability of stories is, you know, there are these stories where if they were in a, taking place in New York, there would be a hundred journalists lined up at the door, but it's a, it's just a wide open place where there's not a lot of people who are, who are writing this kind of stuff. And I, I would guess that Kansas also is a little less crowded around a great story. Yeah. 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 And it, it goes back to that old, you know, long-form narrative journalist advice, which is read the headlines in in the small town newspaper, and and uh, and that's that's the ending to your story. Find out what led up to that. Um, even today, I was looking at a Twitter feed as I was flying home from Kansas, a, a Twitter feed for the for the Hutchison News, I think, and there was an undercover police officer in Concordia, Kansas, today who was outed via social media. I think wow. the, the the students sort of were trying to figure out who this creepy older looking guy was and it, and it turns out he was a cop and I'm not sure what the details are but those are the sorts of things that I, I think in, in any, any given place there's a ton of stories that just aren't being told uh, and um, you know the the football murder story just as an example of something that on the surface it's a headline about a sad story of this of this young man who gets killed by uh, a couple of other young men out on the prairie. But if you start digging, then suddenly it's part of a much bigger story that's that's much more interesting and it is tied into all sorts of issues. You seem to be a um, somewhat a uh, student of the tourist experience and the history of the way that tourism has been reported and, and, and how it... Um 
how it comes to affect our view of other cultures. Is, is tourism something you've studied formally? Absolutely. You know, yeah. even, even back to the, to the ancient Roman era, uh, they had their own tourists and their own tourist idiosyncrasies. Um, and I think it's, it's a fascinating uh, expression of human nature, just how people act uh, far away from home. Is that something that influences your reporting in America also when, when you go into a, a strange place? Perhaps metaphorically, just, just the, the idea that one can always misunderstand a place. In fact, yep. our first impressions are often uh, misunderstandings. Um, and even as journalists, um, even on a standard news story, that the most obvious interpretation of a story is often not right, or there's often a lot more to it. Uh, and so I think it's, imp it's important to realize that you, you occupy a space in this tourist matrix. Uh, even foreign reporters um, who write in the omniscient voice and, and, and diminish the I character in their stories are still reporting from a certain perspective. And so it's, it's good uh, to keep in mind one's own limitations as, as a reporter. And, and as a travel writer, that's an ongoing challenge. Uh, is that you're always bumping up against your own ignorance and, and your own role as a tourist. And, you know, that you, you have this tourist-traveler dichotomy and, and people try to argue over who's better, but really it's, it's a little pissing contest um, when, in fact, the locals of a country or even a place will just look at, at the two people who are arguing over which is the traveler and which is the tourist, and they both look the same to the people who live there. I... Um... I like some that that in your writing and in a lot of your travel writing, rather than sort of out of hand dismissing the backpacker or the the sort of uh, the boob tourist, um, the 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 tourist with the lonely uh, planet guidebook clutched to their chest, you you describe that as part of that is part of the travel writer's experience is dealing with those people and, and interacting with them. And you don't necessarily dismiss the less experienced tourist. In fact, when you talk about traveling through Southeast Asia, they're a major part of the landscape. Um, I guess I'm sort of interested in how the internet has changed all of this. There was a, there was a time when the Lonely Planet guidebook would was uh, the single sign of, of a certain kind of tourist um, and a certain, a certain symbol of, um, seeking authenticity and that kind of stuff. Has that stuff changed with the internet? Has, has the internet changed travel writing as well as it's changed travel? I, I think so. And man, I, I would probably have to study it for a couple more years to even, to even make a comment on exactly how it has changed it. Yeah. But, um, back in the early 1960s, Marshall McLuhan wrote in understanding media, how, um, in the context, I think of, in-flight magazines or photographs or something. He said that um, they're all the, in this building. The in-flight magazines offices are right. Oh, under are they? Us. Yeah. Okay. The Delta. Okay. The Delta in-flight. So, so maybe they started this this feedback loop that is being actualized now by all by by social media and the internet and blogs and things. But he said that um, this kind of media is turning the world into a museum of objects that have already been encountered in another medium. Uh, and, and so he was saying that you can, on your way to Amsterdam, you can read about Amsterdam in the in-flight magazine, and it, it suddenly gives you this matrix of expectations that you're competing against. Well, now it's that times a million, you yeah. know, is that you can research every, every hour of your two-week trip to Europe in advance. You can have all your hotels out there. You can have friends lined up in advance, and you really uh, can make it so that there isn't 
much spontaneity or, or accident or there's no boredom. Um, and that's fine. I, I think it's become easier to travel. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, you know, somewhere if you have six kids and you're wondering, should I travel the world for a year? In five minutes, you'll find a blog of somebody who's traveling the world with their six kids. I mean, it's just, right. it's no longer this exotic, mysterious experience. Um, but at the same time, a, a lot of the, the uncertainty and the mystery and the, and the difficulty of travel was part of what made travel special. And it's part of what made it a life altering experience. And I think that it's becoming more of a consumer experience. And I'm not going to knock the idea of a consumer experience any more than I would knock you know, your average tourist or backpacker. But it's just, it's important to recognize what we're kind of losing uh, is that we're, that we're losing these chances for serendipity and accident um, as we become more and more hyper-organized and micromanaged with our travels and, and we're able to pretty much predict what's going to happen if we don't allow ourselves to become bored and become not subject to whatever information is available in advance. Um, and this is part of a long conversation. I mean, when, when steamships were introduced, people complained about how it ruined sure. the experience of sailing, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in, um, so you do these interviews on Rolf Potts. Uh, you did a series called, uh, I think, No Baggage. Is that, that right? Yeah, that yeah. was a... That traveling, was... traveling traveling, the world with uh, no bags at all, not even, not even a small bag. Um, I wouldn't say that these are forms of self-promotion, but you've made yourself very visible. Um, you maintain a website, you do these interviews all over the place. I, like, I've, I, before I even quite knew that you were like the same guy who had read some, done some of these believer pieces I had read, I sort of knew it's like, oh, the Rolf Potts, he's that travel guy. Like, it, how did you, how and why did you build that persona for yourself? Well, it was, it was, Partly intentional and partly accidental is that some of the best aspects of that um, came by accident. Like I was, I started interviewing travel writers simply because I didn't know how to answer people when they said, how do I become a travel writer? Because my own path to travel writing was very specific. And so month by month, I started approaching people to interview and half of those people have become my friends. It, when I was living in Asia, it, it suddenly became my professional community. I wasn't hobnobbing in editorial circles in New York. And, and so it sort of accidentally became this little um, club of travel writers. And then also the questions I ask in that Q&A are very simple. They're the very basic career life questions that sometimes don't get asked when these people are on book promotion or whatever. Um, and so they end up being used as a resource a lot. And so I didn't expect to be the person, you know, when someone is, is looking for Tony Horowitz or Rick Steves or something that people would end up on my website, but it sort of ended up being that way. Um, I actually bought rolfpots.com in 1998 to pitch Salon, uh, and that has slowly developed into a, a very good brand. I, I started a blogging in 2002 to, in support of my, um, my book when it came out in early 2003. Uh, and, yeah, I guess I just sort of stumbled in at a time when established print journalists weren't giving stuff away for free so much and, and weren't touching online stuff. I felt that because I was just this nobody in Asia who was just getting started, I felt like I needed some sort of platform to make up for the fact that I wasn't in a in a big metropolitan city like New York making editorial contacts. Um, and so I was one of the first travel writers with a website. I was one of the first travel writers with a blog. And it's just by accident and by being open to that sort of thing early, it's it's still paying off. 
And so then when I went around the world with no luggage, I mean, that was sort of a stunt. Yeah, um, it's all, a lot of it's like, it's sort of a stunt, but it's in, it's in sort of good, it's in good faith. It, it, it seems like it all is very aware of how much it's a stunt and how much it's not a stunt. Yeah. I, I was up front of exactly how that worked, how, um, you know, I was promoting these certain ideas of travel minimalism and simplicity from vagabonding, from my travel um, philosophy. But I sort of had to break some of my own vagabonding rules when I was when I was traveling around the world with no luggage, um, just because I was I had some sponsors involved and I was really traveling too fast to count as vagabonding, and I was doing so much real time video and blogging that it mm-hmm. it really wasn't the kind of slow meaningful travel that I. Um, talk about in, in in vagabonding, but it was it was rewarding because people were really fascinated by the idea of why is why doesn't he have any bags? You know how is he doing this? Uh, and I was able to discuss ideas that are close to me, which is the idea of sort of a anti materialist simplicity, the idea that experiences are more important than possessions, things like that, and um, and it was good branding. I mean, that's yeah. I guess writers don't really th- throw that word around too much, but um, as a freelancer these days, uh, social media, you know, a Twitter account is part of your branding, a, uh, a Facebook account is part of your branding. And so for lack of a better word, that was, even though I didn't make a dime off of it, um, it was good for my brand and, and, and it maybe introduced some people who hadn't thought about it to certain ideas of travel. I mean, that's interesting. I think that, that branding can be sort of a, a dirty word and, and a lot of those uh, New York travel mag, you know, magazines whose editors you were not hobnobbing with no longer exist. And I, n- I certainly notice in, in, in picking stories for long form that there's a real shortage of travel stuff. Like we're constantly, constantly looking for, for more travel writing. And it seems like at least a lot of the paid positions have disappeared. Do you see any resurgence on the web or are there different sort of vehicles for this kind of stuff that are emerging? I think so. It comes and goes. I, I, um, I think I think now the resurgence of blogs has sort of transformed travel writing in that the basic destination, this is what's in a place type writing has um, has really become a blogging phenomenon. There's so many people blogging in various degrees of, of, of quality, but it's still significant that there's a, a lot of people travel blogging these days, and there's yeah. a lot of energy in that. Um, yeah, I... I the traditional travel magazines, uh, the glossy travel magazines, yeah. aren't really underwriting that much long form anymore. Outside does it a little bit, and that's why that's why it's exciting to um, in, in this little resurgence of of long form, or at least the identification of long form that uh, stories that have happened in the last few years is that um, instead of settling for a mediocre 2000 word story in a very high profile magazine is that people who care about that kind of writing can, can go to um, uh, a place like long form and find actual substantial um, uh, long form stories. So instead of subscribing to one magazine, they can just find the best of them all. It's, it's all about the quality of writing. So if people, if people write, if they write an awesome 8,000 word piece on their blog, then it has a better chance of getting read than, the mimeographed um, zine travel writing of the 1990s. Absolutely. And I, and I, and for me, like I, some of the stuff I've seen online, um, I think it also allows people to break out of the sort of travel writing format. That is, I went to a place, I had this authentic experience and I wrote about it where I was like, I was reading this guy has this, this blog. That's like, he lives in Jakarta and it's just a review of like every bar in Jakarta. 
it's this massive product project maybe eight or nine hundred bar like these are like two or three thousand word bar reviews um that are also kind of like an autobiography of his life in jakarta and i was like man this like if i was touching down in a city this is like i give me this like give me stuff like this and uh sometimes you know we don't necessarily need to uh the internet opens up all these kinds of different narratives that can come out of a place, which is really what travel writing should be, I guess, is uh, narratives from a place. Yeah, and, and, and it's restoring something that sometimes gets um, taken out of travel stories, which is point of view, mm-hmm. is that a lot of travel stories in, in glossier magazines or newspaper travel sections um, are sort of God on the mountain or the narrator on the silver screen type travel narratives. Um, which is fine, but that's not what makes travel interesting to me. It's it's the sensibility that that someone brings to a place, uh, and the fact that that Bill Bryson is going to go to a place and write a completely different story, you know, than than Paul Theroux or or yeah. or anybody else or Susan Orlean, you know. Yeah, that seems like as good a place to end as any. Um, thank you very much uh, to Rolf Potts for coming in a very late night uh, here. This is, I think this, this, this was the first episode that had a chance of crossing midnight. Didn't quite hit it, but uh, I really want to thank you for uh, coming in on uh, short notice right off a flight. And uh, this has been excellent talking to you. So thanks very much. You bet. Pleasure to be here. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks to Rolf Potts for coming in. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern is Sarah Amandalari. If you haven't checked out the Long Form app for the iPad, check it out. If you haven't bought a out of this story, maybe you should. If you come back next week, you'll hear another podcast. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.